What is our moral compass? How do we set the tone for our lives? What code do we live by? Uh, On what basis do we live a moral life? That is, of course, assuming uh, that we aspire to live a moral life. We might not, but assuming that we do, how do we stay on track? Do we live according to the morals taught us by our parents? Do we follow the lead of our culture? Do we go along with whatever appears to be the norm in the part of the world where we happen to live at the point in history when we happen to live? Do we look for role models and simply copy them? Uh, Family members, celebrities, whoever it might be. Well, any of those things could potentially be helpful, uh, but equally they could all be wildly misleading, and so we can't rely on them. From a Christian point of view, there is only one thing that we can rely on to keep us on track, and that is the Word of God, the Bible. And right in the middle of the Bible almost exactly in the middle, not quite, but almost, we find Psalm 119. And this morning we're going to be dipping our toe into this psalm, uh, which has to be one of the most, if not the most, wonderful of all the psalms. When you look up at the night sky, all of the stars shine, but some shine brighter than others. And Psalm 119 is a star that shines particularly brightly. It's the longest of all the psalms. It's, uh, in fact, twice as long as its nearest rival. It's attributed to King David, and its structure is incredibly precise. There are 22 parts to this psalm, and each part corresponds with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first part, Aleph, corresponds to the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the second part, Beth, correspond to the second letter of the alphabet and so on right the way through the psalm and right the way through the Hebrew alphabet. Moreover, each part consists of eight sentences and each sentence begins with the letter that corresponds to that part of the psalm. So this morning we're focusing on Beth and in Hebrew each of the eight sentences, each verse begins with the letter Beth. The reason for this structure, I think, is obvious. It's an aid memoir. Uh, King David was particularly concerned that God's people should remember this psalm. And so it's designed to be memorized. Now, that's harder to do with our English translation, but I'd certainly encourage you to go to Psalm 119 in your own time and meditate on it, study it, absorb it. The purpose of this psalm as I said before, is to, uh, to show the excellence of God's word. And the part we're looking at today begins like this. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. In other words, how can a young person, or any person for that matter, live a moral life that is pleasing to God? The answer? By uh, reading, studying, and inwardly digesting God's word and living according to it, living in obedience to it. Of course, all this presupposes one very important thing, that God is good. We believe that the God of the universe is loving and just and has our best interests at heart, and we believe it for two reasons. Firstly, because the Bible tells us so, and secondly, because Jesus, who is God's word in person, demonstrates it to be so. 
Jesus came into the world to pay the penalty for our sins. John 15, 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we know that God is loving and good. And we also know the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God gives us moral laws. Psalm 119 describes God's word in a number of ways. In various places, it describes God's word as law, testimony, precepts, the way, statutes or decrees, commands, judgment, truth, and righteousness. Nowhere is God's word referred to as advice or suggestions. Uh, I'm sure... um, Some of you, most of you maybe will have someone that you talk to about life. And uh, I guess from time to time that person uh, will give you advice or offer suggestions. Uh, God's word is not a series of suggestions. It is command and it's to be obeyed. To our modern ears, that word command can sound a bit heavy. Uh, We think, oh, I'm not sure I like that. I, I, I... I don't think I want anyone commanding me, telling me how to live my life. Not even God. But this is where we must remember that God is good, and therefore his commands are good. We give our children rules and boundaries, commands, not out of spite, not because we want to spoil their fun, but because we want to protect them and we want them to thrive as human beings. And that is exactly why God gives us commands. We'd be extremely foolish to ignore them. God's commands are not irksome, restrictive rules, but God's way for his people to be happy. And David understands this. Look at the language he uses. I seek you with all my heart, not reluctantly or begrudgingly, but wholeheartedly. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. David loves God's word because he trusts God's goodness. Verse 105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. If you're going through a dark forest, a lamp, a torch is not a burdensome weight that you've got to carry. It's essential. You need it. You appreciate it. You cling on to it. A while ago, I went camping in the Banya Mountains with Caleb, and Caleb wanted to know how dark it was in the forest. So we went for a night walk with a head torch. And we walked about 300 metres into the forest, and we turned the torch out. Uh, Needless to say, it was pitch black. We couldn't even see our hands in front of our faces. Uh, It would have been quite impossible to follow the path without the torch. If we'd attempted to get back without it, uh, we would have probably found ourselves fighting through the undergrowth and eventually we'd have been lost. So we knew that the path would take us back to the campsite and we could see the path because we had the torch. Now, of course, we could have turned off the torch and attempted to get back to the campsite without it. Uh, But I think you'll agree that would have been a rather odd and risky thing to do. And yet that is exactly what we are doing if we neglect God's word. But there are times when all of us deliberately disobey God's word. Uh, Times when we switch off the torch. Uh, There are other times when we can almost slip into sin without realizing it because our knowledge of God's word is incomplete. 
Certain lifestyle choices are so entrenched in our culture uh, that we can stray from the path without knowing it. And that's uh, why we need to know and understand God's word. It lights the path ahead of us. It gives us the, that direction. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Once we recognize that God's word is good, we have a responsibility to, to read it, to seek, to understand it. We must hide God's word in our hearts. Going back to the analogy, turning off the torch is one thing. Throwing it into the undergrowth is quite another. Um, there's a big difference between agreeing that God's commandments are good, but struggling to obey them, and treating God's commandments with contempt and disdain. They're two very different things. I mean, my kids know that they're not allowed to eat sweets immediately before dinner. And if you ask them, they'd admit that that's a good rule. They really would. I had a conversation with them about it recently. Uh, but even though they understand that eating sweets before dinner is unhealthy and it spoils their appetite, that's what they told me, they do struggle with this. It's not easy for them to stick to it. But that's a very different attitude to the child that says, uh, well, that's a stupid rule, and I'm going to keep on eating sweets before dinner. Verse 10 says, do not let me stray from your commands. I think this acknowledges that keeping God's commands can be a struggle for every one of us. It will be a struggle. King David, who loved God's law so much, broke it spectacularly. He was guilty of adultery and murder. You'll remember his dealings with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and yet he always recognized God's law to be good when he was confronted with his sin he didn't deny it or try to defend or just justify it and for us the fact that it's hard to keep God's commands doesn't make them any less right or true or beneficial to us as Christians, we know that God is good. We recognize that his word is good. The path he set before us is the right one. And so we aim to follow it. And yes, at times, uh, we will make deviations into the undergrowth. Uh, but God is always willing to forgive those who truly repent. And ultimately, we must persevere on what the psalmist calls the path of purity. God will always bring us on track again when we turn back to him. And this brings us up against a hard fact that 21st century Western culture finds very difficult to accept. And this is the, the fact of objective morality. Contrary to popular belief, morality is not subjective. That is to say, individuals and societies are not at liberty to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. The psalmist says, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Moral law comes from God, not from humankind. When we make good moral decisions, we are being obedient to God's law. When we make bad ones, we are flouting it. If moral law were subjective, as many do indeed claim, how could we ever truly know the difference between right and wrong? Many would say, well, there is no absolute morality. There is no uh, clearly defined right or wrong. It's for us to kind of work it out as we go along. But that's not what the Bible says. Think for a moment uh, about the Incas of South America, possibly the 
uh, largest civilization in the world, largest empire in the world in the early 16th century. We know that they sacrificed children to their gods, as did some of the Canaan, uh, some of the um, nations surrounding uh, Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. In 21st century Australia, uh, that is considered totally barbaric. We can't imagine how a society could sanction such a thing. Who's right? Us or the Incas? Of course, we would want to say us. But then 21st century Western culture uh, doesn't generally have a problem with abortion. An estimated 50 million abortions are performed globally each year. And for many, if not most in our culture, that's not really seen as a problem. If there is wide, uh, widespread concern, it's not for the fact that abortions are happening, uh, but whether or not they're carried out safely. Two generations ago, and again, society would have viewed this issue very differently. In fact, it's only 200 years since carrying out an abortion in England carried a death penalty. Very different perspective. 200 years from now, and people might look at, back at the, our culture's attitude to this uh, issue and say, well, how could they have allowed that to happen? Don't you see that when it comes to issues of morality, human beings are fickle. So how do we arbitrate between the different perspectives? How do we judge between right and wrong? Some would say that humanity is advancing, that we're moving forward scientifically, technologically, morally, onwards and upwards. Are we seriously expected to believe that the further we go through history the more morally upright human beings become. Because that's certainly not where the evidence points us. You only have to turn on the news to, to see that. Uh, that kind of thinking dominated the world of ideas during the Enlightenment in the 18th century. The First World War shattered that illusion. Here was everyone thinking, well, humankind, we're getting better and better, we're getting more moral, we're, we're getting it sorted. And then the catastrophe, the tragedy of the First World War shattered the illusion. But it seems to have made a resurgence in our thinking. We tie scientific progress and moral progress together as if they are inextricably linked. Do we really think that the internet mobile phones and flat-screen TVs equip us to make better moral decisions. We know more, but we're not wiser. And I think this is where the problem lies. We, uh, we think that knowledge and wisdom are the same thing, but they're not. Sometimes we talk about old-fashioned views or old-fashioned morality, uh, as if the views being expressed are of no consequence because they belong to a bygone era. We see this especially when it comes to Christian perspective on marriage and sex. And uh, we say, uh, and by we I mean our culture, we say things like, what difference does it make if someone has multiple sexual partners, so long as it's between consenting adults? Or we say, weren't they funny to think that sex before marriage is somehow wrong? It's a good job we've moved beyond that now. Who said that we've moved beyond that. The teaching of the church has always been that sex is to be enjoyed within marriage and that marriage is a lifelong monogamous commitment between a husband and wife. The fact that celibacy before marriage is rarely practiced in our culture doesn't make it any less relevant or right. 
And I use this example because our culture finds Christian, Orthodox Christian teaching about marriage and sex to be unfathomable, unpalatable, and frankly, ridiculous. But it's also a perfect example of God wanting to protect us, God's laws being there to protect us. The intimacy that's created by sex increases the pain and hurt that's experienced if the relationship doesn't go the distance. Uh, And couples that don't marry are more likely to separate. The ABC's fact-check page said this, the data shows that de facto relationships are more volatile than marriages. For those who never marry, the chance of separating is more than six times higher. What's more, if we go into a relationship with a string of exes or one-night stands behind us, it can create jealousy and lack of trust. It doesn't always, but it can. Sex outside of marriage, particularly when combined with promiscuity, also contributes to unwanted pregnancies, teen pregnancies, the proliferation of sexually transmitted diseases. This is just one example I picked to show that God's laws are there for our protection. But this isn't about specific moral issues. I've simply used examples that highlight a change in the moral zeitgeist of our nation. At the end of the day, we are all sinful. None of us have lived or are living a perfect Christian life. We struggle with stuff. We will always struggle with stuff. That is why we need Jesus. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how we've lived, God is always willing to forgive those who truly repent. Always. And I know I've touched on some difficult issues this morning. God is always willing to forgive us when we turn back to him. He'll wipe the slate clean. But there is only one place that we can take our morality from, and that is the Bible, the word of God. We cannot look at our culture because depending on when and where we happen to live, our society's view of right and wrong may or may not line up with God's word on any given issue. And it's the same with our lives. There may be aspects of our lives and our thinking that line up with God's word and others that don't. But how will we know which do and which don't if we're not, as the psalmist said, meditating on God's precepts and considering his ways. Right and wrong are not movable concepts. Lust, greed, and selfishness have always been vices. Love, compassion, and selflessness have always been virtues. What people actually do and how they live is irrelevant because God's laws are unchanging and they express God's best for us the ideal for human flourishing. There's a line in one of the Star Wars films where Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Anakin Skywalker, only the Sith deal in absolutes. And if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll know that the Sith are the baddies in Star Wars. And it's an idea that permeates our culture. The idea that we can't be too certain about anything except for hard scientific data. Holding to moral absolutes is considered narrow-minded and even dangerous. But as Christians, we believe that morality is absolute and it issues from the word of God, from his commands, decrees, statutes, and precepts. 
You know, King David only had the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, along with Joshua and Judges, maybe Job. Yet he was captivated by the wonder of God's word. We have the whole Bible uh, that leads to the word made flesh. It leads us to Jesus. Do any of us show the kind of appreciation for God's word that David showed, even though he had an incomplete revelation? Do we take God's word seriously? Uh, maybe as Christians, we're too quick to form opinions about moral, moral issues without stopping to consider what the Bible has to say on the matter. Maybe we don't want to hear that there's a right and a wrong way to live our lives. Perhaps we think that stifles our freedom. Paradoxically, it's the opposite. God gives us boundaries so that we are free to enjoy life to the full. One of the most obvious and important marks of a Christian. One of the most obvious and important marks of a Christian is that they love God's word just as David did. Let's search it, find pleasure in it, and live in obedience to it. If you take nothing else away from today, I hope it will be an encouragement to you to read your Bibles. Why not start with Psalm 119 and read it in its entirety? Uh, Virtually the whole psalm is addressed to God, so it's actually very easy to read it as a prayer. And David says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. If we've been neglecting God's word, if we've been forming opinions without any reference to it, if we're more influenced by the culture than by the living word of God, then now could be the time to change all that. Let's finish by reading aloud together uh, the reading for today, Psalm 119, 9 to 16. Let us delight in the word of God, his life-giving word, the only thing that enables us, that helps us to remain on this path of purity, even though we know we all stray from it. God can always bring us back. Let's pray. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path.